This podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. Also, be advised, we are not medical professionals and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Quick, run. and we're in we're in welcome to mystery team inc i love when we can like get back to our roots like that (laughs) well i don't know if getting it right is getting back to our roots oh you're right i guess that would be turning over a new leaf sure (laughs) i love it when we turn over a new leaf This time, we're getting it right, team. (laughs) Maybe this time. (laughs) Yeah, I've just been watching a lot of documentaries about MLMs, and I'm really bringing that gas boss, girl keep, gate light energy. Um, (laughs) Like, I was like, you better get this right, or you're not going to sell any of those on Facebook Live like you're supposed to. Oh my God, ladies, listen, this is my favorite print. It's elephants over chevron. Mm-hmm. And what is that? Little bees as well? You have to get on this. I will buy the chevron elephant bees for $100. Done. Okay, now the rest of my inventory is in the rest of the rooms of my house. So if you guys want to come with me. Oh, we love an MLM. And I I am getting a divorce, so I will need you guys to buy these now (laughs) or else they're part of the estate. My husband's (laughs) going to get half of them. And he's like, please, please don't give them to me. (laughs) This wasn't my idea. (laughs) Going out of marriage sale. (laughs) I feel like you and I could have been very successful at that. Did you hear that just now even? That was great. great. Um, I don't think I have the the motivation to, like, do that every day. No. Who among us does? I don't know. I don't know how they do it. No. Um, What were we doing? I think we were going to record our podcast about mysteries and the magic of friendship. Right, 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 right. Okay. Great, 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 great. Great, great, great. Do you have any business? Yes. Tuesday, March 8th. At 8 p.m. Pacific, we're going live on Green Room as part of True Crime Tuesdays. Kayla, what is Green Room? What is Green Room, you ask? Green Room is Spotify's live audio app where guests and listeners can join the conversation. Maggie, do you want to tell our listeners what we'll be doing? Yes, I would love to. We'll be doing a debrief of the William Desmond Taylor episodes, and we'll be inviting listeners to join the conversation and ask questions. Kayla, what if I want you guys to do this all the time for every episode? Well, then I have really good news for you. We'll be hosting rooms on Green Room on an ongoing basis. So check our Instagram for announcements about future dates and times. Maggie, how do I get on Green Room? You just download the Green Room app and log in with your Spotify login. Wow. Kayla, do you have any industry jargon that would help sell this idea? How's this? We think this is going to be a super fun way to engage with our listeners and for listeners to engage with our content. So we can't wait to get started. That was great. Thank you. I'm a professional. Is that all the business? Um, yes. 
I'm ready for your mystery. When we last left our heroes, <laughs> they had just unearthed William Desmond Taylor's true identity. Will they finally solve a mystery for once? Stay tuned to find out on Mystery Team Inc. Yeah. <laughs> so when we last left our heroes, um, William Desmond Taylor's ha- uh, valet had robbed him and crashed his car and run away. And then he came back and robbed his house again. <laughs> and then he pawned the jewelry he stole. And then he mailed the pawn tickets to William Desmond Taylor and signed them William Dean Tanner, which is William Desmond Taylor's real name. So I'm so excited. I have been thinking about this <laughs> since we recorded. And I like I have so many questions. This is such a fucking twist, I feel. I'm so excited. So William Desmond Taylor was born William Dean Tanner on April 26, 1872, in County Carlow, Ireland. In 1891, he left Ireland and moved to a dude ranch in Kansas. He eventually moved to New York City, where he met an actress named Ethel May Harrison. The two were married in 1901. William worked at her father's antique shop. In 1902, Ethel gave birth to their daughter, Ethel Daisy. It was well known by his friends in New York that William was suffering from depression and he was a heavy drinker and he was having affairs with several women. How old was he at this point? Uh, Born in 1872 and this is 1902. So 30. Good math, team. Thanks. It's easy when it's multiples of 10. (laughs) Um, Little trick if the number at the end is the same. (laughs) It's multiple Hot time. tip. <laughs> On October 23rd, 1908, William walked out the door and never came back. His family initially thought that he'd wandered off during an episode of amnesia because they said that he had been suffering from mental lapses. He never came back, so Ethel was able to get a divorce granted from the state in 1912. We don't know a lot about what happened from 1908 to 1912, except that... William traveled around Canada, Alaska, and the Northwest mining for gold and performing with traveling acting troops. Did he end up dead in a mansion in the Caribbean? Dude, did did you not? Part of me was like, is this the same guy somehow? (laughs) Like, is that not Harry Oaks? Like, mining in the Klondike? Like, they must have run into each other. Was, like, Soapy Smith there? I don't know. It just feels... They must have. And they look kind of similar, don't they? I don't remember what William Harry Oaks looks like, but... It's just Harry Oaks. It's William Sorry. Desmond Taylor and Harry Oaks. But yeah, no, I will send you a photo. They look very similar. It's weird. So bizarre. I don't... I hope they were friends. Also, I love the early 1900s because nowadays it's like if you're in an acting troupe, your day job is like, I'm a server, like, I'm a VA, like, but... At the time, he was like, I really need a side hustle, so I guess I'll mine for gold. <laughs> Listen, if I could, if my side hustle could be mining for gold, you bet your butt I would be joining a small town theater <laughs> troupe today. I don't know, because when we talked about this in the Harry Oaks episode, you were like, you were like, mining for gold, that's fucking stupid. And then when I told you that he <laughs> struck the biggest seam of gold in the like in the northern hemisphere, you were like, kids, <laughs> never give up on your dreams. 
Listen, so, I'm willing to grow and change. This is called character development. Yes. I love your main plot, or your main character arc is coming around on gold mining. <laughs> okay. And look how it changed me for the better. It's true. Look at you. I do have some news for you, You're though. You're so much better. I found a plot of land. I'm leaving. I'm going to go mine for gold. Well, on, like, VRBO? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, don't tell me you're getting into real estate. The oh, theater no, kid to real estate agent <laughs> pipeline is so real. Like, I can't it's tell direct. you. It's direct. <laughs> it's 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 door to door. Like, you walk out of theater school with a degree and straight into fucking Sotheby's. I swear to God. There's a lot of people I know that are going to be angry about that. But luckily, they don't listen to my podcast. <laughs> we do know that in 1910... William was mining for gold in Colorado. In May of that year, he performed on stage in As the Sun Went Down at the Tabor Opera House in Denver. Same Tabor as Mark Tabor Forum? Tabor. T-A-P-O-R. I thought I had discovered a piece of theater. You almost almost did because (laughs) while he was performing at the Tabor Opera House in Denver, Gibby, coincidentally, was performing nearby at the Pantages Theater in Denver. (gasps) Is that the same Pantages? I don't know. It's got to be, like, right? How many could there be? How many Pantages theater owners could there be? At least two. Oh. That we know of okay. right now. Yeah. Well, we know there's two theaters. Yeah. I said theater owners. Yeah. So technically, there, there could, could be, be at be least two. two. Okay. Statistically, it's unlikely. <laughs> in 1915, William was in contact with his younger brother, Dennis's wife, Ada, Dennis, his brother, was a former British Army lieutenant and manager of a New York antiques business, no relation to William's wife's father's antiques business. And Dennis had also abandoned his wife and children and disappeared in 1912. I guess you could say it runs in the fucking family. Wow, wow, wow. Ada and her daughters moved to Monrovia, California so that she could be treated for tuberculosis. And each month, William was writing her a check to help with her finances. Oh, so he was like a benevolent abandoner. Correct. According to Wikipedia, in 1918, William's ex-wife and daughter saw him on screen in the film Captain Alvarez, because don't forget that he came out to Hollywood and became an actor. And Ethel responded, that's your father. So Ethel Daisy then wrote William a letter, care of the studio. Also, a pro tip, if you're going to abandon your family, don't become famous. Um, They will find you. That's a good tip. I'm full of them today. (laughs) Hot tips Maggie, they call me. (laughs) Oh, her? That's just hot tips Maggie. Do it in the voice because I can't. (laughs) Oh, that's just hot tips Maggie. (laughs) Maggie is such a good transatlantic accent name. It is. Don't run around with hot tips Maggie. (laughs) She'll leave you for a fool. In 1921, William went and visited his family in New York City and made Ethel Daisy his legal heir. So I guess at the end, it, they were things were amicable. That was in 1921. He died in 1922. So yeah, I mean, it sounds like he just he didn't like want to abandon his family. He just would rather have been an actor. I guess and he made a choice. I guess. Well, the thing is that like nowadays, I feel like that person would have just been like. I'm leaving to go become an actor. And then they would have like moved to Venice beach and gotten a younger girlfriend and like, you know, tried to make a SoundCloud album. But like, 
at this time, I don't think you were allowed to say that. So he just walked away and never came back. Yeah, I do. It's interesting that he kept sending money, though, because I feel like nowadays they definitely would not do that. Right. Partly because they probably wouldn't be making any money because it's hard out here. Yeah. But like, you know. It's true. As the investigation into William's murder went on, Detective Eddie King didn't see a motive for Edward Sands to kill William. Edward Sands clearly just wanted money, which is why he kept breaking in and stealing his stuff. If he had shot William, he was like, why would he not have taken any of the other valuables? He knew where everything was. And why would Edward Sands need to stop and ask for directions to William's house? Because don't forget, at the same time that night, someone had stopped into the gas station down the street and asked, if they oh, knew right. where William Desmond Taylor lived. Ooh, ooky. Another problem with the theory was that Faith McLean, who gave that statement because she saw the motion picture burglar, a motion picture burglar, um, <laughs> she knew Edward Sands because he lived in the apartment and she would have recognized him. So it was like not coming together for Eddie King, even but though. Did he have like a motion picture burglar mask? No, she saw his face, remember? I don't remember. She saw his him smile in the sh- like in the shadow of his cap. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't like a Cinderella situation. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think he was wearing like a nicer outfit and everyone was like, "Who's that?" <laughs> Detective Eddie King was sure that Edward was not responsible. Thomas Woolwine, the DA, did not agree. There was one thing that they did agree on. Detectives had found several cigarette butts in the alley behind William's house, some of them half-smoked. One had just barely been lit before being dropped. So police agreed on the fact that the killer had probably been waiting in the alley and slipped into William's house in the few minutes while he walked Mabel out to the car. Police thought that the person either came there to kill William Desmond Taylor or, more likely, went there to talk to him, rob him, or extort him. Something went wrong, and they impulsively shot him. There was also the possibility that it was a crime of passion. Eddie King floated the idea that William was being blackmailed. Several of the stubs in his checkbook were made out to cash, and William obviously had enough secrets to warrant a blackmailing. Some of the checks were up to $1,500. And based on his accounting, there were about $13,000 missing from the income statement that he was preparing for his taxes. Hmm. Friends had said that in the weeks leading up to his death, William had been acting odd and anxious. This is so Harry Oaks. It's really bizarre. It's really weird. His tax accountant, Marjorie Berger, told police that when William had come to see her in the afternoon on the day of his death, he had with him a large roll of bills, which would have been significantly more than the $78 that was found on him the next morning. But that's so weird. Like, why take some of it and not all of it? Some of what and not all of what? The roll of some bills. Some of the money? Mm-hmm. Oh, and like leave the 78 mm-hmm. if you're robbing him? Mm-hmm. Unless, and this is like just my theory, unless he handed over part of it before he was killed. And then, of course, there was also the possibility that William had been killed over a woman, which was the story that the press had latched onto. And that sort of fit the crime of passion angle. Which woman, though? We'll talk about it. Meanwhile, Mary Miles Minter went out partying with other studio folk. A director that she was close with drove her to the studio and sat her down in his office. And he was like, 
I learned from Charles Ayton that the studio has your love letters to William. And he was like, we got to do something about that because this could ruin your career if this comes out. Yeah, it kind of looks like maybe you killed the man you were in love with because he wouldn't give you the time of day, Mare. Correct. But Mary didn't care because she was basically like, I want people to know about our love. Oh, my God. I know. She just keeps becoming more of a problem. I know. By February 9th, Mary's love letters were splashed across the front page of all the newspapers. This is from the February 19th, 1922 edition of the St. Louis Star. I love you, I love you, I love you, wrote the movie actress to the late film director, thereby proving that movie actresses do, after all, have a pretty large vocabulary. (laughs) How fucking funny is that? Why did that get me so good? (laughs) It's a good joke. It's a good joke. (laughs) The letters had been handed to the press by the studio because Mary's contract was up for renewal. And Charlotte, Mary's stage mom had been lobbying for a raise for Mary, despite the fact that she was the first actress to ever get a million-dollar contract. Charlotte wanted more, so she was lobbying for a raise, and the studio gave the letter to the press because being implicated in the murder basically lowered her market value as an actress, and they could be like, well, people aren't going to want to watch your movies because keep in mind that the reformers were basically getting people's films banned whenever actors did something messed up. Right. That is some serious producer brain right there. It's diabolical. Yeah. At the police's request, Charles Ayton agreed to bring back all the evidence that they stole from the crime scene. (laughs) Oh, my God. I forgot that he, like... That's how he got the letters. I totally forgot that he, like, did a full Scooby-Doo heist. (laughs) Yeah. Because the the studio execs run the... Police department. Right. Oh, my gosh. So the police were like, you're going to have to bring that back. Otherwise, you're obstructing the investigation. And they were like, fine. So. Fine, whatever. We don't even need them anymore. (laughs) It's true. Actually, they weren't even like, they were like, yeah, we'll bring back all the evidence. You can't tell, but I'm winking. Um, I heard it. I heard that. Yeah. (laughs) So they were like, okay, we'll bring it back. Um, Mabel had told the police that William had kept all of her letters, but they were unaccounted for. So that's like, they were like, okay, well, clearly (laughs) somebody has them, not naming names. Uh, they talked to the studio and Charles Ayton said, we only took things that are relevant to the studio. Um, which is not true, but he was like, well, also everything is relevant to the studio if you're trying to avoid a major scandal. Yeah, true. So he brought back all the files to the house and the cops dumped all the papers onto the dining room table and started going through them while Charles Ayton slipped upstairs and hid the stack of letters from Mabel in one of William's boots because he didn't want them to know that he took them in the first place. So he hid them so that they would think that they just missed them. Um, (laughs) The police didn't find what they were looking for in the papers. Surprise, surprise. uh, Probably because they still kept all the important stuff in a safe at the studio. Did Do we think that they, like, suspected that they didn't give them everything? Or were they just like, well, this must be everything. Interesting that there's nothing helpful here. Genuinely, I feel like it could go either way. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. The studio, like, way. ran the town. So they may have just been like, okay, whatever you say, boss. Um, <laughs> or they might have been like, gee, Officer Krupke, I didn't see... <laughs> 
what I was looking for in there. And they were like, me neither. G office the crumb. Yeah. We were really upset. Yep. We didn't get the lettuce that they said we would get. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> we ain't such bad cops. We're just misunderstood. <laughs> Gee, Officer Krupke, we're no good. God damn it. Should we be um, satirical songwriters? Maybe. The next day, the police continued to search William's apartment, and surprise, surprise, they found Mabel's letters in William's boot. No way. But more importantly, they also found a handkerchief monogrammed MMM. And it had also likely gone to the studio and been returned by Charles Ayton now that they weren't interested in protecting Mary anymore. <laughs> and that handkerchief set their sights spot on Mary Miles Minter. That is so... It's messed up. Correct. But also clever. And this is why I think William J. Mann wrote the book about this the way that he did. Because the studio, like the goings on, the inner workings of the studio have so much to do with this case. At this point... Public pressure was on the DA to call Mary in for an interview. The DA had been quite resistant to call Mary in because he was friends with Charlotte Shelby. No way. Not only was he friends with Charlotte Shelby, but many people say they were having an affair or had had an affair in the past. In fact, the gun that she'd taken on that midnight trip to William Desmond Taylor's house had been given to her by a detective from the LAPD, on the instruction of D.A. Thomas Woolwine, after Charlotte had expressed concern to him about intruders. The potential murder weapon in this case had been given to her by the cops on the instruction of the D.A. That's one of the dumbest things So I've you can imagine heard. why... Once again, we meet another character with a vested interest in skewing... The solving of this murder. Now, he had to interview Mary. Instead of letting Ed King interview her, he had his own deputy conduct the interview to, like, shield her from a tougher line of questioning. Once the interview was done, the DA's office made an announcement. They would be charging Edward Sands with the murder of William Desmond Taylor. And DA Woolwine made Eddie King make the announcement. Ooh. That's some fucking Game of Thrones bullshit right there. That's some, like, tell Cersei it was me. (laughs) Shit. It really is. Because Eddie King was 100% convinced that Edward Sands didn't do it. In fact, he was so convinced that the night before Mary's interview, he had gone to Mary's house himself and interviewed her. But he didn't disclose what he learned in the interview. Why? What the heck? What the heck? Because he's playing his cards close to the vest. But I want them near my vest. He's a loose cannon cop with nothing to lose. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't play by your rules. Uh, (laughs) He's been in the force for 30 years. Uh, Correct. He knows how to get things done. Uh, He's the number one mystery solving cop. He solved the most (laughs) mysteries. Bosch would be so different. (laughs) If that was the tone. (laughs) He was like, Chief, uh, Chief, I solved the most mysteries. I'm not going to do things your way. I'm a loose cannon cop who doesn't play by your rules. <laughs> I play by my own rules. I'd watch it. The police went to Charlotte Shelby's house for an interview. 
When they arrived, they found that Charlotte was surrounded by lawyers. She was like, I'm so sorry. I have a six o'clock train to catch, but I'm just going to leave these lawyers here and they can answer any questions you might have. I'm just going to leave these lawyers Such a power here. move. And Eddie King was like, God damn it. <laughs> like, who? Someone tipped her off. And obviously, I think we all know who probably tipped her off. God damn it. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't have any grounds to detain her, obviously. And so they had to let her go. And the lawyers were like, did you have questions? And they were like, no, not for you. So they decided to do the next best thing. They went to interview Shelby's mom, Mary's grandmother. When they got there, Mary's grandmother was sweet as pie. This is a Louisiana family. Um, And she cooperated with them. And... Mary had already told police that she had been at home reading books aloud with her grandmother the night of the murder. And her her grandmother, Julia Miles, confirmed that story. And she also confirmed Mary's account that Charlotte had not been at home. Ooh. But Julia, the grandmother, didn't know where Charlotte was. She knew that she was with friends, but she didn't know who. That was the extent of the helpful information that she was able to provide. Okay. I'm. It's not solid. No. So the cops left. Um, Not long after the interview, 70-year-old Julia Miles boarded a train to her home state of Louisiana. She took a solo trip across the country. She went to their family's plantation in Bastrop. She walked to the swamp. She pulled out Charlotte Shelby's 38 caliber revolver. No. And she threw it into the bayou. Oh, that's not where I thought this was going. Because that's not something a guilty person would do. (laughs) I thought she was going to shoot herself in the head. No. I'm glad she didn't. No, no, no. Because I don't think she did anything. I'm glad that old woman didn't kill herself. You're so brave for saying it. Thank you. (laughs) We were all thinking it. Um, but I do like that she's now, uh, like an accomplice in whatever may have happened. Well, this is like, you have to decide what, before you have children, like what level of crime are you willing to cover up? (laughs) That's totally fair. They should put that in like the, what to expect when you're expecting books, (laughs) like things to plan for, like set aside money for potential like education Consider to what extent you're willing to break the law to shield your child from crimes. <laughs> it's like, what to expect when you're expecting. Chapter six, obstruction of justice. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Meanwhile, Detective King decided to take another look at the evidence. Because this is back in the day when the detectives would just get out a fucking magnifying glass and look at the clues with an EW himself. So he went to the evidence locker, but he was informed that William's clothes had been sent back to the mortuary. So Eddie King and his partner went down to the mortuary to get the clothes and found out that they were just about to be burned. They were all bloody. Like, what were they going to do with them? The implication that William J. Mann makes is that the DA basically got rid of them. Yeah, I think that's a fair implication. Mm Mm-hmm. So Ed King and his partner were like, give me those. Uh, 
<laughs> and they took the clothes and they went back to the precinct. And they looked at William's coat under a magnifying glass. And under the collar, they found three long blonde hairs. Now forgive my cheese hole memory, but... <laughs> cheese hole! <laughs> who, who is blonde? The showbiz baby. Mary Miles Minter. Okay, that's what I thought. So Eddie King went down to the studio. Wait, but they hugged that night, right? That was December 23rd. And he was found dead in February. So that is, uh. that will come up. Eddie King went down to the studio and he paid a studio employee to sneak into Mary's dressing room and take some hair from her hairbrush. How much would you do that for? I would do it for free because I love a mystery. That's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> but maybe not for an actual cop, but I would do it for like a PI. Oh yeah. No, no, no. I won't do anything for a cop, yeah. but for, like, a, yeah. for a PI in a good trench coat, 100%. Yes, exactly. Like, I'm not going to help the police entrap someone, but yeah. I will help solve, a, find a clue <laughs> for, yeah. for the right PI. <laughs> for the right PI. <laughs> An expert determined the hairs on the coat were Mary's. Shortly thereafter, Thomas Woolwine told Ed to cease and desist. DA Woolwine confiscated all of the evidence. Wait. He locked it in a cabinet in his office. Hold on. <laughs> and a few months later, it went missing altogether. Hold on! And that's why we will pick back up after the break. No! Yeah. No. <laughs> I'm furious. Please! Why did he do that? <laughs> Please! <laughs> why did he do that? Because he's obstructing justice. Didn't you read chapter six? <laughs> of what to expect when you're expecting? Oh my god. Because he was probably having an affair with Charlotte. <sighs> We will talk about it more later, but yeah. Okay. Fine. Fine. We'll take a break. Fine. We'll be right back, I guess. <laughs> After these, whatever. They're your messages. <laughs> After these messages. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome back to Soothing Existential Nighttime Radio. Coming up, an interview live in studio with The Hat Man. SXNR is sponsored by Benequil. Benequil, your allergies won't matter in sleep paralysis. Okay, so I have to give a content warning for this next part because it involves racism 
and abuse, and it's very fucked up. So during all of this, the press was busy painting a very offensive picture of Henry Peavy. They were basically just being racist and homophobic. Um, They added a stereotypical Southern drawl into his poll quotes phonetically, despite the fact that Henry Peavy was not only not from the South, he was from San Francisco. He asked D.A. Woolwine for permission to move home to San Francisco, but the D.A. told him he needed to stay in Los Angeles, so he did. One day, a couple of men came knocking on the door. Henry told them he didn't want to speak to any newspaper reporters, and they were like, newspaper reporters? No. We're the FBI. Yeah, basically. They were like, we're officers from New York, and we came to ask you some questions. And he was like, okay. And they were like, yeah, we're going to take you down to the examiner office and ask you some questions. And he was like, okay, why would a cop want to interview me at a newspaper office? And they were like, don't even worry about it. Um, there's $1,000 in it for you. And at the time, $1,000 had the buying power of about sixteen grand today. Woof. So Henry was like, I don't believe you. But I'm going to do it for the money, because why wouldn't you? So, Henry went with them. They drove him to the examiner office. They put him in a room. And then they kept him there all day, just grilling him. And he was like, I don't know anything more than what I've told you. And this is kidnapping, so you're going to need to let me leave. But they were convinced that Henry knew something about William's death that he wasn't saying. So they literally kidnapped him, held him hostage at the examiner's office for a full day. When he told them he didn't know anything, they kept pressing. And then eventually he did say that he didn't like Mabel Normand because she used to laugh at him. And he was like, if anyone did it, it was probably her. The man behind this kidnapping was Chicago examiner reporter Frank Carson. Frank Carson and his reporter partner, Al Weinshank, had come to L.A. from Chicago to get the scoop about the William Desmond Taylor murder. Frank Carson then walked into the room and announced that they had brought in a psychic. And the psychic had said that Henry was going to see the ghost of William Desmond Taylor and that the ghost was going to implore him to tell the truth about the murder. It was later said by another Examiner employee that, quote, Carson had the notion that PV, a black person, that's not the words they used, would go out of his mind if he saw ghosts. So just some casual racism. And then as William J. Mann puts it, PV was having none of it. He kept threatening to report them to the DA. When it got dark outside, they put PV in a car and took him to Hollywood Forever Cemetery. They pulled up to the vault where William Desmond Taylor was buried. Oh, he was buried in Hollywood forever? He was, and his vault is there. They pulled up to the vault where William was entombed. The driver turned off the lights, and everyone hustled Henry Peavy out of the car and over to the vault. And suddenly, a ghost appeared. Nuh-uh. And Frank Carson yelled, Look, 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 it's Taylor! The ghost made spooky noises, and Henry stood there looking at everyone like they were fucking idiots, which they were. (laughs) 
And then the ghost dropped to the ground and grabbed Henry's ankles. Which is decidedly anti-ghost. Correct. Well, I think he, it wasn't scaring him enough. So I the know, ghost... but you, ghosts can't, they're not corporeal by definition. So Frank Carson was like, run, Henry. And Henry turned around and said, and this is a direct quote, what are you trying to make out of me, a fool? The ghost let go of his ankles, stood up, and was like, tell me who killed William. <laughs> and William Mann writes, how peculiar that in death Mr. Taylor should acquire a Chicago accent. <laughs> Henry walked up to the ghost and grabbed him by the fucking throat and just started choking him. I love Henry. So Frank Carson ran over to, like, help the ghost. And when Henry let go, um, the sheet came off Scooby-Doo style. And it was revealed to be examiner reporter Al Weinshank. <laughs> of course it fucking was. Oh, Big my God. newspaper. Um, the men ran for the car. And Henry Peavy, I like to imagine, like, dusted off his hands and just fucking walked home. Just strolled. Where did he, where was he living? He did. He just walked out of Hollywood forever. Where was he living at the time? Do we know? His apartment was on, I feel like I said 4th Street. But also, I don't know if he walked all the way home, but I know that he walked out of the cemetery because the examiner, the examiner reporters took the car. And he was just like, bye. He might have taken a trolley. Who knows? The next morning, the reporters caught the first train back to Chicago because they were like, we're going to get arrested for kidnapping. And um, the they were never charged with any crime, despite the fact that they fully kidnapped that man. But the NAACP did file a complaint against the examiner on Henry's behalf. And Al Weinshank was killed a few years later by Al Capone's men during the St. Valentine's Day massacre. Ooh. So that's what happened to those guys. In the summer of 1922, Mary went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming to star in a Paramount picture called The Cowboy and the Lady, which I would love to see. I think we can gather what it's about without seeing it. Alongside actress Patricia Palmer. Patricia Palmer was the new stage name of Margaret Gibby Gibson. (gasps) who had changed her name and her age to make her six years younger after the little Tokyo incident. She looks the same, right? Yes. So who's being fooled by this? Right. Gibby had gone to Jesse Lasky of Famous Players Lasky slash Paramount and asked him for a job. And for reasons that no one quite understood, he gave her that job. In August... The cast and crew boarded a train back to Los Angeles, but during a short stop in Idaho, oh, and I believe this was directed by Charles Maine, which is the same guy who went over to William Desmond Taylor's apartment that morning, the director, who's friends with Mabel. Um, But during a short stop in Idaho, Gibby, Mary, and a few other people from the crew decided to sit out on the open back of the train car. And another train engine was backing up and (gasps) thought that they had more room than they did. And they collided with their train going about 15 miles an hour, and it threw Mary through a glass window. (gasps) Since there were no doctors in Victor, Idaho, which is a sentence that William wrote where I was like, what? Um, There were no doctors, so they had to just take the train 
to the next town, which was 43 miles away. When they got there, they discovered that Mary's glass wounds were too deep for the operating room to handle there because their operating room was also like a makeshift situation. So they had to go on to the next town. And it wasn't till like 10 or 11 that night that she finally got stitched up. But I guess afterward, she was like pretty, a pretty good sport about the whole thing. And she, when she was interviewed by newspaper reporters, she was like, these things do happen. <laughs> um, no, they don't. <laughs> I know. In the fall, Gibby, pretty much out of money again, went back to Jesse Lasky and asked for another job. And for reasons, again, that no one really knows, he cast her in another Paramount slash Famous Players Lasky film. In 1923, she asked for another job, and for the third time, he put her in another film. Meanwhile, D.A. Thomas Woolwine had lost the governor's race, and in March of 1923, he announced that he had stomach cancer. In June, he resigned, and his deputy, Asa Keys, became the new D.A. immediately. And Eddie King was like, this is my chance to relaunch the Taylor murder investigation. So he basically went out trying to get new statements and turn up new evidence. Incidentally, that was the summer that they installed 50-foot-tall letters in the Hollywood Hills that flashed Hollywoodland. Aw, iconic. Hollywoodland. We love them. Did you know that they used to flash in segments and it would go Hollywoodland? No. I knew it said Hollywoodland. I didn't know they flashed. They flashed, and I guess the residents of the hills were like, uh! Yeah, I would be furious. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> oh my god. Speaking of which, remind me at some point we should cover, I, I'll probably do an episode about it, but I want to do an episode about Griffith J. Griffith shooting his wife. Do you know that story? I don't know if it was you or my mom who I talked to about it, but like early on in our podcast years... We definitely talked about doing an episode because I did not know about it then. I It may have been me because I think it's a fascinating story. He like he basically shot his wife in the head and she survived and was like, I want a divorce. And <laughs> yeah. And then for, for Christmas, when he got out of prison, he was like, as a gift, I want to give you, I want to give LA this observatory and this theater. And the LA was like, no, absolutely not, you fucking weirdo. No, thank you. <laughs> and then he put it in his will. And that's like why we have now the Greek theater and the Griffith Observatory. Um, so we should definitely, I don't know, we should definitely do an episode about it. He put it in his will that LA had to accept a, an observatory he, and a he theater. He bequeathed from him? it to the city in his will. Oh, that's so annoying. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that summer. Mabel did a film with her old producer pal, Max Sennett. Sennett wanted to get back with her romantically and as a producer. And Mabel was like, I'm not going to date you, but if you want to work with me so much, I'll do your next film. But I want three grand a week and 25% of the net profits. <gasps> yes, <laughs> girl. And she got it. He gave it to her. In 1925... The new DA, Asa Keys, agreed to formally take a look, another look at the Taylor case. While interviewing Charlotte Shelby's former accountant, Marjorie Berger, who you may remember as William Desmond Taylor's tax accountant, Eddie King recounted Charlotte's statement that Marjorie had been the one to call her the morning of William's death and give her the news. And the accountant, Marjorie, was like, that's absurd. I didn't tell her. She told me. And the cops were like, what? what? 
And she was like, yeah, she called me at 7.30 a.m. and told me that William had been murdered. And the cops were like, Henry Peavy walked through the door at 7.30 a.m. So how did she know? If Charlotte called Marjorie at 7.30 a.m., she knew that William not only was dead, which no one even knew he'd been murdered till like midday when the coroner coroner finally showed up and was like, ew, gross. (laughs) If that was true, Charlotte knew that William was not only dead, but had been murdered before Henry Peavy even opened the fucking door. That's... She just fucked herself over. And the cop, yeah, basically, and the cop, well, she didn't fuck herself. Marjorie fucked her. Right. Because she told the cops that Marjorie told her. And Marjorie was like, no, she told me at 7.30 a.m. So they were like, that's enough to go after Charlotte Shelby, officially. They brought her in for an interview, and she lied through her teeth. She was like, I always quite liked William Desmond Taylor. Like, I just (laughs) lied. And they were like, well, fuck. Like, what are we going to do? We don't have any evidence. The gun's in the bayou, which they didn't know. The evidence they had against her was circumstantial at best. So they hit another dead end. In the spring of 1926, they were able to get Marion for another interview. But again, nothing came of it because she was like, I don't know. In 1928, the new DA, Asa Keys, was indicted and found guilty of taking bribes. Oh, my God. So that put another fucking wrench in the works. Then in 1937, almost like, you know, more than 15 years later. Hold on. What's the math? 22. Yeah. 15 years later, Mary's older sister, Margaret, came out publicly against Charlotte. I think that what had happened is Charlotte had, like, invested their money because they were, this is before Coogan accounts, and she had invested their acting money for them. Um, and Margaret, like, wanted her money, and Charlotte was like, no. But also, it turned out later that Charlotte, like, had invested their money very wisely, and they were all able to live off of it for the rest of their lives. But at the time, Margaret was mad. And so she came out and publicly against her mom. Wow. And she said that in the hours before William was murdered, Charlotte had locked Mary in her room. And that Mary had snuck out that night and didn't come home until 8.30. She also revealed that her grandmother had thrown the gun in the fucking swamp. (gasps) She knew? She knew. The new DA ordered the police to take new statements from everybody. Charlotte's secretary corroborated the story about Mary being locked in her room that night. And she said that it was allegedly because Mary had told Charlotte that she and William were going to elope. And Charlotte locked her in her room. The level of like drama that is happening in this family because of something that is just made up is not even incredible. real. I know. When they brought in their chauffeur, Chauncey Eaton, he told the cops that even though the gun was at the bottom of the swamp, he may have something that could help them. He said that when Mary had faked a suicide attempt, Charlotte had asked him to take the ammunition out of the gun to prevent Mary from making a real suicide attempt. Chauncey hadn't thrown the shells away. Instead, he'd gone down to the basement of the house and set them on top of a support beam in the basement. That was at their old house that they lived at like 15 years ago. But as far as he knew, they were still there. So he was like, I mean, if you want to go look. Detectives raced to Charlotte and Mary's former home, basically on a wing and a prayer. They got there. They got the current owners to let them in. They went down to the basement. And lo and behold, sitting on top of a beam in the basement was the ammunition from Charlotte's 38 caliber revolver. Where has Chauncey been this whole time? I know. Like, had no one talked to him? I genuinely don't know. 
I think maybe not. I mean, they must not have. If they spent the whole time thinking that it was um, somebody else, then why would they talk to Chauncey? Yeah. I got really excited, and then I remembered that this is a podcast about unsolved mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't like that I'm not going to know. So they took the shells in for analysis, and they were the same kind of bullets as the ones that killed, as the one that killed William. Okay, in how sp- is this unsolved? Fucking just wait. I'm furious. In the spring of 1937, they convened a grand jury. Charlotte, Mary, and her sister Margaret all testified. Mary testified that Margaret was a raging alcoholic and that she was just trying to get back at their mom for withholding her money, which, as we know, she actually invested. For the first time in 15 years, Charlotte gave an alibi for the night of the murder. Oh, thank goodness. She said that she was with actor Carl Stockdale. And actor Carl Stockdale testified that that was true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the jury elected not to indict her. This is so dumb. But they also didn't exonerate her. So Charlotte told reporters, I demand, I demand a complete exoneration in this case or an indictment for the murder of William Desmond Taylor. I did not kill William Desmond Taylor. I do not know the person who did kill him. I do not know any person who would have the slightest reason or motive to kill him. One of the worst tortures for any person, particularly a woman, is to go through life with a cloud of malicious innuendo constantly hovering over her like a specter. Why must William Desmond Taylor's murder follow me through the years? I want to live the rest of my life in happiness and peace if I may be permitted to do so. I would be like, yes, but I think she did it. Just wait. In September of 1938... The new, new DA closed the case for the last time. Edward Sands was never seen or heard from again. Whoa. He probably assumed a new identity and just went away. Don Osborne and Ross Sheridan, the guy that fell in love with his cousin and his blackmail buddy that shot that guy, mm-hmm. were convicted of extortion in ni- that were friends with Gibby Gibson, were convicted of extortion in 1923, and they both went to jail. Don Osborne served his sentence and was released a few years later. He went on to work on a few more films. He worked as a labor union organizer, a production manager, and eventually became a traveling salesman. He died in 1950 of throat cancer. Ross Sheridan, a.k.a. Blackie Madsen, moved around the country for a while until he was eventually either stabbed or shot, we don't know, but it injured his lung and the injury never recovered, never healed. And he eventually returned to Los Angeles and died at the age of 64. And his ashes are also interred at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Henry Peavy eventually moved back to San Francisco. He died of syphilis at age 49 in 1931. George James Hopkins, William Desmond Taylor's uh, secret boyfriend, went on to win four Oscars and worked as a set decorator for some of the greatest films of the 20th century, including, but not limited to, Strangers on a Train, A Streetcar Named Desire, Casablanca, A Star is Born, East of Eden, Auntie Mame, My Fair Lady, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Wait Until Dark, my favorite, and Hello, Dolly. Holy shit. Yes. Went on to have a very prolific career. In his unpublished autobiography, he wrote very lovingly of his seven-year relationship with William. 
In April of 1924, Adolf Zucker's rival, Marcus Lowe, finally caught up to him when he arranged a merger for his company, Metro Pictures, with Sam Goldwyn's company and Louis B. Meyer's company to create a new company called Metro Goldwyn Meyer. How'd that company do? At its inception, MGM was worth $65 million in capital stock. Holy shit. Zucor and Lowe continued their rivalry until September 4th of 1927, when Zucor visited Marcus Lowe for the last time. Marcus Lowe's health was rapidly declining, and as he left, Adolf told him he'd see him again soon, but Marcus Lowe died that night in his sleep. When asked for comment, Adolf Zucor said, All I can say now is that I feel his loss more than that of any man in the world. Adolf Zucor lived to be 103. Holy shit. He retained an advisory position at Paramount until almost the very end of his life, and he died in 1976. Wow. Can you imagine going from vaudeville to silent pictures to talkies to radio to feature, basically inventing feature length films to television and dying in the 70s? Yeah, that's like our parents going from like corded phones to car phones to pagers to flip phones to Blackberries to iPhones to like hologram <laughs> telephones in our eyes. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, basically introducing the world to the feature film, and then the year you die, um, the best picture winner is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? <laughs> Can you imagine someone, like, That's in your lifetime so being crazy. like, that'll never catch on. And then it's, like, the summer before he died is, like, Jaws was in theaters. That is so bananas. Charlotte Shelby went on to write an unpublished autobiography called Twisted by Knaves. She lived comfortably on the money that she had invested for Mary and Margaret, she moved into Mary's house in her twilight years, and she died at Mary's house in 1957 at age 79. Mary made her last movie in 1923. She moved to New York for a time, but she eventually moved back to L.A. She married a real estate developer at the age of 55. Eight years later, her husband died, and she basically turned super reclusive. In 1970, an episode of Rod Serling's Wonderful World of Crime aired, in which Rod Serling implied that Mary might have been involved in William's death. So Mary sued CBS and Rod Serling for $350,000. The court ultimately gave the following statement. The law does not provide for a remedy for every annoyance that occurs in everyday life. Many things which are distressing or may be lacking in propriety or good taste are not actionable. And added, there can be no doubt that one quite legitimate function of the press is that of educating or reminding the public as to past history and that the recall of former public figures, the revival of past events that were once news, can properly be a matter of pu present public interest. In 1980, it was discovered that Mary's hairdresser, who came to her house every other week, had been stealing from her. He stole jewelry, silver, antiques, and photos, and sold the photos for up to $500 each. Um, and when he was charged, he pled guilty. In 1981, at the age of 78, Mary was attacked in the middle of the night, beaten, bound, and gagged in her home. The intruder stole $300,000 worth of antiques and jewelry, and eventually it turned out that Mary's caretaker had planned the crime. <gasps> Mary Miles Minter died of a stroke in 1984 at the age of 82. She was cremated and her ashes were scattered in Santa Monica Bay, and you can still visit her star on the Walk of Fame on Vine Street. Hmm. We should go look at it. We should. On New Year's Day 1924, Mabel was having drinks with her friends, actress Edna Purviance, who you may remember from living at the Alvarado Court Apartments, who called her the morning of William's death. And Cortland Dines, a wealthy millionaire oil broker at his home on Vermont. 
At 7 p.m., her chauffeur showed up, a man who was named Horace Greer. But what Mabel didn't know is that Horace also had a criminal past and had given her a fake name. Horace came to Cortland's house unannounced and told Mabel it was time to go home. I read in one account that he actually showed up dressed as a delivery man in order to sneak into the house. Um, That's like the only person you don't let into your house. Yeah, I don't know what that was about. Um, But he apparently was like, Mabel, it's time to go home. Like, you've been here drinking too long. And she didn't want to leave. And he insisted. And I guess Cortland, like, got in the way of it and stood up to him. And something transpired where Horace pulled out a gun and shot Cortland Dines. He shot him with Mabel's own gun. What the fuck? He turned himself into the police immediately and an ambulance was called. When the ambulance arrived, they found Cortland smoking a cigarette in a pool of his own blood. (laughs) Which is just so 1924. so good. He survived, but the press went wild with the story and Mabel being involved in another high-profile shooting scandal um, completely destroyed her reputation. Theaters across the country started banning her films. The reformers were like, this is why Hollywood is a stain on the dish towel that is America. And <laughs> she they couldn't, couldn't get her films shown anywhere. But she didn't do anything. I know. Mabel moved back to New York permanently. Um, she never made another movie, but she did become a stage actress. Which was probably a difficult transition because she was a silent film actress. So becoming a stage actress (laughs) apparently went well. But the one criticism of her was people said that she didn't speak loudly enough. In 1927, she was diagnosed with tuberculosis. She died of tuberculosis in 1930 at the age of 37. You can also still visit her star on the Walk of Fame. It's on Hollywood Boulevard. Just before she died, she reportedly looked up at her companion slash nurse, Julia Brew, and said... I do hate to go without knowing what happened to poor Billy Taylor. Aww. He was her best friend. That's so sad. And that was the story of William Desmond Taylor. Until. What? In 1964, in the Hollywood Hills, a 70-year-old woman named Pat Lewis suffered a heart attack in her home. Pat Lewis almost never left her house, and the home was shrouded in thick foliage. Her only real friends were her neighbors, who knew very little about her. Her neighbors came to her aid as she lay on the kitchen floor awaiting paramedics. She had recently converted to Catholicism and told the neighbors that she needed a priest to confess her sins. As she lay dying, she leaned in and told her neighbors that she had been a silent film actress. Oh my god. Her neighbor recalled, It was obvious to me that she was suffering under some kind of pain-inspired delirium. Oh my god. Realizing that she had very little time left, she pulled them close and said, Oh my god. I killed William Desmond Taylor. (laughs) Deathbed, deathbed confession is a deathbed, deathbed confession is a deathbed, deathbed confession is a deathbed, deathbed confession. He could have died in that bed, but he confessed instead, and then he died. Deathbed, deathbed confession. Congratulations. So happy. (laughs) We've got a deathbed confession. But who is she? This is an excerpt from the article that her neighbor wrote, abridged for length. Several months would pass. Then, one afternoon, a letter arrived from an attorney. We had been named beneficiaries of the late neighbor's estate, provided we met certain obligations of the estate. 
In return, we would receive the woman's unencumbered home, furniture, and personal property. On entering her home, we discovered little of consequence as she obviously lived at or below the poverty line. What little furniture was of no value. However, there was a miniature case resembling a trunk. It contained a bundle of letters, along with many theatrical stills of a much younger woman. Could she have been a silent screen actress? A quick check with the Motion Picture Academy's library revealed that there had never been a silent screen performer by the name of Pat Lewis. At this point, my mother made a further observation. Apparently, she already knew of Pat's possible involvement in the murder of William Desmond Taylor, and she only came out with it after the fact. According to Mom, Pat would come by each evening to watch television. One evening, they were watching Ralph's story Los Angeles. When Ralph did a whimsical piece on the William Destin Taylor murder, Pat became hysterical and blurted out that she'd killed him and thought it was long forgotten. (gasps) But Mother never once said a word to any of us about this incident. In 1964, I had neither the time nor the initiative to pursue the matter any further, so I simply took what few materials I'd accumulated and stashed them away, hoping someday to take them up again. There was, however, a clue to her identity. Written across the face of one of the photos was the name Patricia Palmer. No fucking way. So, that leaves us with possible theories. The obvious theory that people believe for many years is that Charlotte Shelby shot William Desmond Taylor. The pros of that theory are that she had the right kind of gun with the right ammunition. She got rid of the gun, which is suspicious. The DA was protecting her, so that is suspicious. She was aggressive. She literally brought a gun to William's house before. She had told him she would blow his brains out if he (laughs) hung out with Mary. Some people think that the reason that Faith said that the guy looked like a motion picture burglar is because maybe it was a woman dressed in men's clothes. Or she could have hired someone to kill William and didn't pull the trigger herself, but maybe furnished the gun... Cons to that theory are that the witnesses saw a man, although that doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't her. Yeah, it's Hollywood, baby. Anybody can be anybody. (laughs) William J. Mann's theory is that Gibby Gibson, a.k.a. Patricia Palmer, may have known any or all of William Desmond Taylor's secrets. She was working with him at Vitagraph when he was fired. She likely knew why he got fired. She likely knew that he had relationships with men. She likely knew, I mean, she may have even known him back in Colorado when they were both performing. Um, So his theory is that she pegged him as a mark for Don Osborne and Ross Sheridan and their blackmail scheme. And he thinks that Don, Gibby, and Ross Sheridan were blackmailing William and that Don and Ross went to the house that night to collect money or to threaten William He believes that when William came through the door, he found Ross in the house, picked up the chair by the door to defend himself, and that Ross panicked and shot him like he did to that other guy. Hmm. Um, He believes that William basically fell on top of Ross and that Ross rolled him off of him, which is why he would be laying flat on his back. And that's why the chair and then picked up the chair, which is why the chair would be over his foot. Um, He thinks that the missing cash was money that he had to pay off Ross and Don. And he believes that the man who asked for directions at the gas station was Don Osborne because he would have been young and he was taller. And that the man that 
Faith McLean saw leaving William's apartment was Ross Sheridan, that he had been like the trigger man who slipped into the house. Um, the pros for that theory are Ross Sheridan could have easily been confused for Edward Sands because they were about the same height and they were both bow-legged. Hmm. So he thinks that's why that woman thought that was walking down the street thought that the man she saw might have been Edward Sands, but she wasn't sure. Because from the back, Edward Sands and Ross Sheridan would have, would have looked really similar. We also know that Ross Sheridan had a super old 38 caliber from the Spanish-American War. Remember when I was like, but when he got out of prison, they gave him his gun back? I do recall that, yes. Yeah, so he had the same kind of gun. And remember when they were like, there can only be one in thousands that like this ammunition would come from this gun. Charlotte Shelby had one and Ross Sheridan had one. We also know that William had secrets that Gibby probably knew, like why he was fired from Vitagraph, like I said, um, or about his relationships with men. So we don't know why he was fired. We don't know. <sighs> William J. Mann also believes that the studio must have had evidence of Taylor's killer in all the stuff they took. And that might explain why Jesse Lasky kept giving her jobs. Yeah. After and she couldn't get work until after William Desmond Taylor was murdered, and then she kept going back to Jesse Lasky, and Jesse Lasky kept giving her a job. So either she was they they were either blackmailing Jesse Lasky or she knew something and the studio knew something, and they both refused. They both were leveraging it to keep it from getting out. Mm-hmm. Cons to that theory is there's never been any concrete evidence found that links Margaret Gibby Gibson to the murder. The third possible theory is that the drug dealer network wanted to take William out and put a hit on him after he basically told the feds that he was going to like turn over Mabel's drug dealers and that they were trying to get the drugs out of the studio. So obviously he had enemies there. And then the fourth possibility is that someone we don't know killed him for reasons we don't know. I hate that one. And that is the mystery of who killed William Desmond Taylor. I think it was the woman who deathbed confessed. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Also, why would you do that <laughs> if you didn't have something to do with it? Yeah. And it's it's interesting to me that she saw that TV show. She freaked out. And then the next day, she had a heart attack and died. And on her deathbed, she confessed that she did it. Like, it just... Yeah, I... I can't imagine why you... Why? If, that, if she didn't have anything to do with it. No, I think that she absolutely did it. Why else would you, like, she wouldn't be protecting anyone by deathbed confessing. And that explains why she didn't death, like, she didn't say anything until then. Like, the show must have sparked, like, her conscience. Mm-hmm. I think it was her. I feel comfortable with that explanation, that level of evidence. Yeah, and she, she said the night before, like, she thought it was all forgotten. So I think it makes sense that, like, seeing the show, like, yeah, sparked her conscience. Um, yeah, and if she lived as, like, a hermit forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I get it. Just her and her cat, Raja. Raja. And in her will, she left a stipend for veterinary care for Raja. Aww. And if that is the case, then poor fucking Charlotte Shelby and Mary Miles Minter, because they spent their whole lives in the shadow of suspicion for this murder. I know that's so sad if they had nothing to do with it, but also like they weren't making themselves look not suspicious. 
I genuinely don't know, though. I mean, I can also, it like, I, there's tons of motive for Charlotte Shelby. And she had the right gun. And she went over to his house with a gun before. I know. I just but feel I, like she would be smarter than that. Yeah. And I also just don't, you can't discount a deathbed confession. Like, I can't. For some reason, that just, like, gets me so good because you, like, we always ask, qui bono? And it's like. The only person who bonos from a deathbed confession is the person who thinks they're about to go to hell. You know, like. Yeah, exactly. I just, I can't ever discount a deathbed confession. I know. But we don't know. We have no idea. We may never know. Um, The Alvarado Court Apartments were eventually bulldozed and it is now a parking lot for, I think, a Ross. Um, Mm, Classic Los Angeles history. So we can't go look, unfortunately. I loved that so much. It had everything. I also loved that. Old Hollywood, transatlantic accents, and a deathbed confession. And I have no notes. What more could you possibly ask for? Nothing. I actually discovered this mystery because I was Googling unsolved mysteries with deathbed confessions. (laughs) I love that. And they were like, this one. And I was like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) How have I never heard of this? It's so good. I can't believe I hadn't heard of it either. Yeah, it's pretty great. You've got a famous director, Slane. You've got (laughs) Mabel Normand, the comedian with a heart of gold who was the last to see him alive. You've got Mary Miles Minter, the showbiz baby with a broken heart. You've got Charlotte Shelby, the woman whose number one love is money and number two love is Mary. Yeah, you've got Edward Sands, the sneaky valet. You've got Henry Peavy, the valet with the heart of gold. In 2012, to mark the 140th anniversary of his birth, the William Desmond Taylor Society in his hometown of Carlow, Ireland, established TaylorFest, an annual arts and film festival honoring Ireland's most prolific filmmaker and celebrating the contribution of the Irish to silent film. Aw, I love that. Yeah, dude. What a phenomenal mystery. It's a fucking mystery. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to everyone for listening. For two episodes. <laughs> Worth it. Oops, and you're welcome. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did because I, I had a great time. I loved it. All right, we don't know. Stay in your lane. Buckle the bucka. Smooches, kid. <laughs> Goodbye.